welcome to the Limerick Treasures podcast. The podcast where we interview interesting and influential people about their lives and find out what it is that they treasure about Limerick. I'm your host Katie Flannery and this week's guest is historian, writer and Mary Eye lecturer, Dr. Paul O'Brien. So Dr. Paul O'Brien, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome Katie, thanks for the uh, invite. You're very welcome. Now, I know that you are a proud, clear man, but how do you feel about being called a Limerick treasure? Um, I suppose I'll have to take it as a compliment. Hopefully not too many clear people tune into this or I might be (laughs) permanently banished from the county, the best county in Ireland, obviously. Uh, But no, Limerick is my adopted home and I really love it down there and I love the city and there's always something new to find out and experience, particularly history wise in the city, which is, you know, very exciting. Mm. Well, you have been finding out a lot about Limerick and Limerick City, so but we'll get to that. <laughs> but okay. uh, you are very much embedded in Limerick. You're a lecturer in Mary Eye and you're a historian, an author, and you've also written numerous articles and papers. And they're all in the area of 19th century Irish history, more, most of them anyway. So I just, I suppose, how does one get into this? Because you, you are an expert, uh, you know, of, of 19th century Irish history. So, like, is this something that you were always interested in, even growing up as a child? Yeah, I, I guess it is, Katie. Like, I do remember being quite a young child and my grandmother, my late grandmother, was very much into history and into Irish history in particular. That was, sort of, I suppose, our context in the new state. I remember being about seven years of age and knowing everything about the Maastricht Treaty, watching my friends out in the Green Plain soccer, and I was listening to my grandmother, t- uh, I suppose, teach me about the European Union project, the Maastricht Treaty, and things like that. I guess it just went from there. I always loved reading. My parents and my grandparents always bought us loads of books at home. One of my very earliest memories is um, my grandmother had a set of encyclopedias and there was a photo of a mosaic, a Roman mosaic being uncovered and it was in brilliant colour. And I just remember like sitting down and writing my own interpretation of the image in the book which I still have because my grandmother kept it. And I guess from there, from seven or eight years of age, I was always fascinated about what went before, be that in a building or a street or a family, perhaps. I'd see an old building, it might be dilapidated or falling falling down. It sounds a bit peculiar, perhaps, but I still have this sort of, gosh, who went before there and why is the building falling down? And why, why does it look like that? Has the building's history been recorded? Who built it? Who lived in it, perhaps? What stories did they tell their kids or their their friends and family? And it really went from that. I guess I was always very curious, curious to know about buildings and about people. And in a sense, it was the perfect marriage, I suppose, growing up. I loved history in school and English. Initially, I went to art college. Um, That didn't really work out for me. I worked for a couple of years and uh, I went back to Mary Eyes, mature student in 2005, I think it was. I was 25 and did history and philosophy in the undergrad and loved history all the way through and every part of it and read books and age books and still do and you can see uh, as you come into the few minutes ago right behind me that's a beautiful um, bookcase full of books from some of them going back to the very early 18th century I have not read them all, but I've certainly taken them down. I love looking at the book plate and the name, you know, perhaps Katie Flannery, 1810, Paula Bryan, 1840, and wondering what, what that book meant to them in their context, in their era, you know, because books mean different things in, in different eras. Um, I guess it just really went from there. And Mary I, small college, 
huge reputation uh, in the history department. Very, very lucky to have had Dr. Maura Cronin as my PhD supervisor and just really went from there. And though I live in Limerick full time and love living in the city itself as opposed to in the suburbs, I guess that like I always did keep one foot um, in West Clare. And in 2013, I think it was, we were very lucky to have the National Famine Commemoration. We brought it to the town with the help of the uh, local history society, uh, of which I helped found, and uh, Clare County Council. And that really, I suppose, opened up this huge realm, this huge appetite for public history. It was a huge event. I think we had 20,000 visitors over the course of 10 days in the middle of May. And it was all sorts of history, history for children, for school kids, students, older people, but it was just so real that touching back to the past and people bringing along, you know, their treasured family heirlooms in the time of the famine. And it might necessarily have been anything physical. It might have been stories which were handed down to the families or poems or songs in some cases. And listening to older people in their 70s and 80s recalling and recounting these songs as though their late grandmother had just sang it to them yesterday. It's really, it was a real emotional feeling, even right now in this moment, I get a bit of a kind of a shoot through my body. And that for me is what history is about. It's not grand theories, high politics. It's the history on the ground, the public history, making it accessible for people. You know, you can look at any of the Georgian buildings in Limerick in the city, they're 230 years old. And just think of all the people you know, from the people who designed the buildings, the cities, who built them, who made bricks for them because they're all handmade. You know, there's so many parts to one of those buildings in the city. And it's not just the most famous person who perhaps lived there. In my opinion, they're all famous in their own context. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's where I am in history. Yeah. And you mentioned Kilrush there, and I know you're very proud of, of Kilrush and being from Kilrush. And I think you mentioned to me in a previous interview as well that you've established kind of an ancestry hub in Kilrush, or you are developing one in Kilrush at the moment. So can you tell us about that? Sure. So the Vandeleur station, Kilrush, the Vandeleurs were the uh, landlords in the town. They left the town about 1900 and their house had accidentally burned to the ground in 1897. And nothing remains of the house except really a number of gate lodges on the way into the estate. And in recent years, the wall garden has been restored, which is really worth a visit. There's the plug. Um, however, one of the gate lodges was lived in by a local family until about 30 years ago. It had fallen into a real bad state of repair. And we had restored the probably five or 600 year old graveyard right beside the um, lodge. And we had always looked at the lodge and said, someday when we, the History Society, win the lotto, we'll do up that building, even just to conserve it, not to put anything into it. So Clare County Council approached us about three years ago, two, three years ago, and we partnered with them and put together a project and pitched it to the Heritage Council of Ireland, to their Historic Towns Initiative. And we were very lucky to be awarded, I think it was €180,000 which was topped up by about €60,000 from the County Council. And we restored the building back to its former glory. It was built in 1845. And the whole idea, Katie, is to put a kind of a genealogy hub in there in the summer months. Because over the years since we, I suppose, 
founded the History Society, we've had so many people. We get probably 15, 20 emails every month of the very, very worldwide Clare diaspora asking, you know, where, where can I find my, my family? I think they're from here, they're from there. And pre-COVID, when they'd visit the town, we'd all of us end up meeting them in a pub for lunch and a chat, which, as you can imagine, it's quite a dangerous territory when you're on your holidays. Um, so it's our intention to have the sort of centralized area where people can come in, chat to the experts, particularly Dr. Paddy Waldron, who is another founder member and an expert uh, genetic genealogist and known worldwide, half Mayo as well, I hasten to add. His late mother was from County Mayo. Um, and, um, and sort of bring people into the town and hopefully people might stay for an extra night or two because there's a central place. They can go off, visit graveyards, visit archival spots or whatever and come back maybe the next day and chat to us. So it will hopefully have, you know, a small practice to begin with, but a small economic spin-off for the town. And everything we do in, in the town, all the fundraising are kind of, I suppose it's a not-for-profit. All the money goes back into heritage in the town. And that's really how it functions. And it's been super successful so far but it's a community effort it wouldn't work without the input of the community certainly wow that's amazing and even in a in a previous interview you were telling me about the kind of economic benefits that learning about you know your heritage or having heritage hubs or making heritage sites or even just acknowledging the history of a place can really not only have benefits to the people of the place and being proud of their area it also has I suppose tourism benefits and I had you on previously talking about the medieval mile was in Limerick City and I'm kind of getting from even some things I've seen from you online, you're discovering so many things about Limerick that have previously not really been told. It's kind of a running theme that in Limerick, there's a lot of stories that are untold and it's kind of a shame in a way. So how have they gone under the radar and how have you, I suppose, discovered them? I guess the same as any place, and it doesn't matter if it's city or town or a village or even a townland perhaps, it's just sometimes as historians or just in general people with an interest we stumble upon we very often we stumble upon things which i suppose as you say has gone under the radar like very recently for international women's day i put a post up i'm sure you might have seen it about a famous limerick connected artist called stella stein and stella's family were jewish they lived on woodstone street in uh, the city her father was for, from Russia, I think, but uh, her mother was from the same place in Russia. They came to Limerick in about 1870 to avoid persecution, advise some pogrom in, in Russia. They settled in Limerick. Her father was a dentist. Her mother at the time, of course, didn't work, work outside the home, but obviously she worked in the home. And they had three children in Limerick. They eventually moved to Dublin about 1906, 1907, after a lot of harassment and abuse against uh, the Jewish community in, in Limerick City. And Stella herself was born in a house in 94, Ranella Road in, in Dublin. And she went on to be this really important artist in the 20th century. And I suppose she emigrated. She lived in Germany. She trained in the very famous and, I suppose, renowned at this stage Bauhaus school. She married a linguist from the UK and they had to leave Germany because they in turn were persecuted by the Nazis and she settled in the UK and I suppose she just sort of that link was cut with the city and they didn't keep the link up themselves I guess with the city and all this time passes by and great and stories of great women like Stella Stein and indeed her family just get lost in time 
And, you know, again, with Stella, I was looking for something on Wolfstone Street. I wasn't necessarily looking for individuals. I'm just interested in the history of the street because it's quite close to Mary Eye, especially. And out pops this a report on Stein family. I went to the census. I found out a little bit more about them. And hey, presto, research, a lot of research later, but enjoyable research. You know, it's you, you could just push the family back on the street, back in the street and back into the, into the context of, of their own history in Limerick. You know, it's, I, get, I think it's not just, you know, it's very important for me to give, I suppose, a voice and give identity and give agency to these people, in particular women who are often written out of the story or, you know, not as, shall we say, popular, and I mean that in a sort of this kind of a way, um, to, to the story. I just think it's all about sitting down, looking at a house. Again, it all goes back to the house, who lived in the house, who were its original occupants, and go from there. And a couple of years ago as well, on, on Wolfton Street, Paddy Kelly, who owns Charlie Malone's pub, asked me to look into the history of the pub. And I found that there is a living descendant from the house, an actress in her own right. She's been in several Jackie Chan movies. Her name is Tara Leviston. She is now a writer. She lives in the UK, a really nice woman. And because of Instagram, I was able to find her and reach out to her. And she was doing her own research into the family, but it hit several brick walls, I guess, as she said, not being a trained researcher. And we uh, communicated and corresponded via email and save for the uh, corona pandemic, she was due to visit Limerick. Hopefully she will in the future. But she was very much aware of her history on the street. So there's two really, really interesting women, a woman in the present day and a woman who died in about 30 odd, 40 odd years ago. And, you know, they're a couple of generations apart, but they're as equally as interesting and important, if you like, you know. So it, it's all about uncovering, you know, I suppose sometimes with history, we'll, particularly if you're not a historian, I guess, or a fan perhaps of history, you might look back and go, oh, history is boring. It's all about 1916. It's all about the famine. It's all about the stuff we were maybe forced to learn in school. But if you break it down further, it's about people, you know, mm-hmm. and people are interesting no matter what they do. You know, everybody, I know it's a cliche, but everybody does have a story. You know, so it's, it's about unpicking those stories and giving those stories back to the city. I really, really believe that, you know. Yeah. And, and do you think there could be scope to maybe emulate what you did out in Kilrush in Limerick? I don't I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there is no genealogy hope in Limerick at the moment. As far as I understand, there isn't. No. Uh, there's one out in East Clare somewhere, but there isn't one in Limerick. Now, there are a number of excellent, of course, genealogists in the city. However, there's no genealogy centre, as far as I understand. So that's definitely something, even if it was only, you know, a part-time initiative, you know, during the summer months, months when tourists are visiting the city. But Limerick, as everybody knows, is so rich in history. You know, a number of years ago through Mary I and the students at the time in the college, we, we surveyed, uh, mapped, photographed and wrote up every single grave in Mount St. Lawrence. I think there's 100,000 people buried there, so it took a number of years to do that, you know, and all that data is available. So, yes, I, I think there is probably, no, actually, there is definitely scope to uh, have some genealogy centre or even on a part-time basis open in the city for certain. It would bring people to the city, you know, people come, Mount St. Lawrence is enormous, okay, you go and you check out your grave, you find it on a surname, you go, gosh, I think there was building 
I think they had a shop in the city where it's a shop, it's too dark, I'm going to go back to the hotel. And people might stay for a second night and go and visit the building the next day. And if it was a pub, they might have lunch in there. And, you know, either way, if they're going to spend two nights in the city, there's going to be an economic benefit to the city. It's not going to be millions of euros, but it's going to be in real terms, it's going to be hotels, it's going to be food, perhaps a shopping trip. But in, in a sense, it's going to be an Instagram post, it's going to be Twitter, it's going to be, you should visit Limerick, the people are great, I found my great, great, great grandmother here or whatever. So it does have this long lasting effect. It's not just the money that people spend when they arrive in the city. It's this legacy effect, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it must be very interesting for you as well when you're researching the history of, of Clare and then you're researching the history of Limerick and like you mentioned there there's a lot of multicultural kind of aspects in Limerick City because it's more metropolitan we'll say and then there's the Georgian aspect of things and I suppose it's more aristocratic in a way as well so like is it really interesting for you having that kind of I suppose dipping your foot into into because they are really worlds apart when it comes to history in many ways. Yeah, for sure, Katie. Like Limerick, same as Kirosh, in a sense, you could research both places for a lifetime and never even get halfway through all the history. But I guess in Limerick, particularly around Georgian Limerick, very recently, Julie Long from GBM Printing, Fiona Coughlin and myself, would put together a, a history of William Leamy, who founded Leamy School on Hearthstone Street. And that was fascinating. I mean, born 1750, adopted, we might say these days, by a wealthy landlord, uh, given an education to which he would never have, have had access to otherwise, became a gentleman, if you like, and went to Edinburgh for a couple of years and eventually emigrated to Madras in India and made his fortune. Like He was super wealthy out there. He was trading in tea, precious stones, gold, etc. And he came back to, to London. His health was infirm and eventually he dies in Lisbon in Portugal. So that's sort of the bones of the story. And we kind of felt everybody knows the building. Everybody knows that the very famous Limerick author, Frank McCourt, attended school there. However, nobody really knows about Leamy, who Leamy was. So it was very interesting to join the dots and push Leamy's story back to the fore. Because without Leamy, you know, there was no Leamy school. You know, I'm not here to say that Frank McCourt wouldn't have been educated elsewhere, but his association with that particular street would probably not exist. You know, so with that, then I was thinking, gosh, I wonder whether more Limerick men and women in India in the 1770s, 1790s. And as it turns out, there were loads of them out there. There was a huge network in Limerick, there's a huge network of Irish people out there. But there were certainly upwards of 10 or 15 Limerick men who made their fortunes in India and China, trading ships between both countries in the late 18th and very early 19th century. And they're not written up. You know, so just one person, William Leamy, just a conversation that Julie, Fiona and I had, has now led to perhaps potentially a huge network of Limerick people working in India in 1770, 1810. I mean, India to Limerick in 1770, it's like us guys going to the moon today. You know, it just didn't really happen, you know, and certainly if you went out there, perhaps you never came back. But Leamy, I, I believe with Leamy because he had had the good fortune to receive an education, which really wasn't intended for, you know, his um, sort of class in, uh, in, in, 
in, in the 18th century, he gave back to the city. So he sort of perpetuated his, his education and scores and scores of the poor, as he called them in his will, the poor of Limerick were educated because of his good fortune, which he made in a very, very, very far flung planet in the 18th century. So again, that little board, you know, I've, I received an email down at the weekend from somebody in Palace Kenry who told me that when he was growing up, there was a cottage and it was always known as Leamy's Cottage. And he figured that perhaps this small little cottage, which I believe is a room now, was perhaps where the Leamy family came from, you know, and he wondered what the connection was with the school in the city. And he could never, I suppose, draw that connection together. So again, it's the whole idea of spreading the historical knowledge, casting the net wide. And when you cast, when you pull it back in, you get all this additional information. So it's it, there's, there's so many stories to be told about Limerick. Like, you know, of course, we've scratched the surface. Like, you know, and there are scores of people before me who have been very enterprising in uncovering so many histories of people and places in Limerick. And I know from my recent sort of discoveries that when I'm dead and gone, there'll still be thousands of stories to be told, you know. And that's what makes us, you know, never ending in a sense but very exciting because the pool will never dry, hopefully. Yeah, well, it's, it's very interesting. You know, it's mad the things that you can uncover. It's just so unexpected, like the connection with India as well. It's just so, just it's, it's mind-boggling, really. But you've actually uncovered your latest project. is quite interesting, if you'd like to tell us about that. Sure, Katie. So for the last, I suppose, three years or so, I have been uh, researching the life and times of Lady Victoria Perry, who was daughter of the fourth Earl and Countess of Limerick. She was a very interesting uh, woman. She was born in Kildare. There was family land in Kildare. However, she spent a significant amount of time in, in the family seat, both in the city on, on Henry Street at the uh, Bishop's Palace there in Henry Street, and also at the family seat, the ruins of which are still extant to Moor Castle out in the county Limerick. If you're traveling out the road, people always comment and say it looks like a fairy tale castle in the distance. And I've been very lucky and fortunate to visit the site, even though it's in private hands. And it is like a fairy tale castle. She was Anglo-Irish, born into that class. Privileged, you know, obviously very privileged. But the family was not without its tragedy. Her baby sister died when she was three years old. Her brother ultimately was shot down and killed over France. Her father died in 1929, quite uh, young. And her mother lived as a widow uh, in a very old Jacobean mansion in the UK on her own until she in turn passed away. And uh, Victoria herself died in 1918. So... You know, you can have all these trappings. It's not going to give you, you know, at the end of the day, your health is your wealth. However, Victoria, in her very short life of about 25 years, accomplished so much. So certainly by 1911, 1912, she was flying aeroplanes and they're described as planes. But uh, when one sees photographs of them, they look like they're made from print stick and sellotape. And she's flying them and she's flying them all over the UK. She, she flies out of a, a very famous airbase called Hendon. Her flight instructor is a very famous guy called Gustav Hamill, whose father was the king's doctor. So she was very well connected. She had a group of uh, very good aristocratic lady friends, Lady Drogheda, the daughter of Lord Cavendish as well. And they flew together and, you know, she knew engines. She was able to take an engine apart and put it back together. 
I mean, our idea of these aristocratic women, I suppose, is part based on, on programs like Downton Abbey that they're very graceful, they're very elegant, they're quite capable, but they're never really given the chance to, I suppose, exercise those abilities. So she was the first woman of title, which seems a little funny perhaps to you and I today, but she was the first woman of title to do a loop-de-loop in an aeroplane. And thereafter, the, the newspapers christened her the Lady Looper, which I think is quite funny. But, you know, in the newspapers, it was the newspapers were very much split. You know, she appeared in ladies' columns, which were all about what she was wearing when she was flying and who she was flying with and things like that. However, when male journalists were commenting on her, they were aghast that a woman would want to fly. They were aghast that her mother and father would allow her into an aeroplane, you know, that she knew about engines, you know, they called it vulgar, a, vul- a vulgar waste of time that these women were flying when, of course, they should have been, you know, doing lady things. But she was very accomplished in her own right. She was described in numerous articles, newspaper articles, as being a very accomplished sportswoman. So she was a champion rifle shot. She was a champion horsewoman, a tennis player, and of course a pilot. She was engaged, within one year, she was engaged to the son of a nobleman, a British, a UK nobleman, and also to the son of a Spanish duke, both of whom she gave the uh, flip to and didn't go through with the marriage even though she was photographed with them in society magazines. And I guess it would have been quite, you know, a scandal at the time for this young woman to walk away from these marriages. But I think it gives a real insight into her character. You know, she was this real dynamic woman and she wasn't going to be, you know, literally tied down and prevented from, you know, exploring the skies and soaring a little higher than her station, perhaps. So she gave those two lads the flick. Uh, she eventually married a guy called uh, James N. Brady, whose father was Thomas Edison's business partner and whose family owned all of the utility companies in New York City and New York State. Her father-in-law at the time of his death was worth $85 million, uh, an obscene amount of money even today. A self-made Irish and Tyrone originally, a Catholic, of course, and she was a uh, Church of Ireland. So that in itself would have been a scandal. And of course, at the time, very wealthy American heiresses were marrying titled English men, you know, Lord this, Baron that, Earl of that. And it's a real sort of fashion. And their money was saving a lot of these families uh, in the UK. It was very unusual for it to be flipped. So Lady Perry went and married a man in the States, reversing the sort of new natural order. And again, that was seen as a reflection of her independence. I haven't found any evidence that she was involved directly with with the suffragette movement or directly involved in female politics. However, her acts of independence, her acts of, you know, Dionysism and flying aeroplanes, Arguably, they're just as important as the pure suffragette movement, if you like. So she marries uh, Brady, obviously goes to live in New York and has a very charmed lifestyle. I think her husband bought her a 29-roomed apartment, they call it, I would call it a mansion, overlooking uh, Fifth Avenue, uh, Central Park direction. There were several big country estates purchased as well. And she had a very charmed life in New York. However, she was married in 1914. I think that like... She was still sort of pining to be useful, perhaps, during the war. And she came back to the UK at great personal risk uh, during the war and volunteered in a hospital in the UK. And she was also a fundraiser with her mother, collecting money on the streets of London for injured soldiers. 
again, she didn't have to do any of this because of her station and because of her position in life. But I think it gives a fascinating insight into Victoria. She became Victoria Brady in the US because they don't see him as here, really recognised titles. Uh, Brady family money still exists to this day. The Brady family money saved the Chrysler Corporation. Victoria herself patronised the arts and left lots of money to museums and things like that. Unfortunately, she was a victim of the Spanish flu in 1918, and we're all very familiar with that today. And she died of pneumonia at Christmas in 1918, and she's buried in New York uh, in a rather fancy uh, grave. Uh, the family were exceptionally charitable, and her husband, James, of course, was heartbroken after he buried his second wife, his first wife, Miss Hamilton, she had been killed in a train accident along with two children, I think. And here he had buried his 25-year-old wife, his second wife, in 1918. He was so heartbroken that he founded a school in her name called Villa Victoria, which is still going to this day. And it's a private, it's a girls' private secondary school, a Catholic school in, I think it's in uh, New Jersey. So the family money is still about today. It's still in New Jersey as well. The family money still funds a couple of pieces for a museum there every year. So it's very interesting. And one of her grandsons, I think one of Victoria's grandsons, was a member of cabinet in the Ronald Reagan government in the, 19, in the late 1980s. And the families continue to be large horse owners in Kentucky. So very, I, I like that idea that they're still involved in horses and Victoria was such a keen horsewoman in her day. But she was this incredibly fascinating and beautiful woman. Of course, part of the story looks at her, her debutante ball into society, her great beauty, her lovely complexion, her passion and all of that. That's an unavoidable part of the story. It's very cliche, of course, for her, her class. However, the real story is that at, you know, 18 years of age, 19 years of age, she could take apart an airplane engine and put it back together. I still can't even change a plug. You know, so here you have this woman who was really expected to go to balls, entertain her husband's friends, you know, furnish big houses and things like that. That's sort of the cliched version. And I love the idea that, in fact, there were these other much more fascinating women in the 1912s and 1913 flying airplanes. During World War One, the British, um, the RAF was in its infancy. And there were so many men engaged in the war and they were losing so many men in airplanes. Of course, her brother was uh, lost as well, the Viscount Glentworth. Uh, that uh, somebody in government suggested that Lady Victoria should come back to England and head up a female RAF. They respected her so much as, uh, as a flyer, which was really fascinating. Lady Drogheda, one of her best friends, she was engaged by the RAF at the time to drop leaflets over London, informing Londoners of what was happening in the war. You know, so these really accomplished women who've just been sort of forgotten by society because ultimately they get married, they have families and they sink into that role, which they, in a sense, try to avoid for years and years. So I hope that people will will like Victoria, of course, but we'll get to know her and get to know this really strong and dynamic, you know, aviator way ahead of her time. Lady Mary Heath is a fascinating woman as well from Newcastle West direction. Very well researched, very well known. But my understanding is that she was flying in the 1930s and 1940s, whereas Victoria was flying at the advent of, of airplanes. You know, so I think that sets her apart a little bit. But of course, there are so many similarities to that with Mary Heath. 
And I'm sure if Victoria had lived on herself and Mary Heath, their paths undoubtedly would have crossed. Oh. And is there any acknowledgement to Lady Victoria in, in Limerick? Or is, sometimes I think maybe people are, I suppose, hesitant to acknowledge, I suppose, this Anglo-Irish, you know, kind of landlords and aristocrats. There's kind of less of a onus on Irish people or less of a want to acknowledge it. Has that happened? Yeah, I, I, I suppose, I, I suppose I'm not too sure if that is really part of it. I think just because Victoria, I suppose, she was also always split between, say, the UK and Limerick or the UK and Dublin, you know, or, or Kilkenny. She was very good friends with the uh, Ormonds uh, in Kilkenny Castle. So I suppose she died at such a young age as well. She died in 1918, the end of the war, the start of the flu pandemic. You know, so she was, I suppose, nearly instantly lost to history. She had not really flown since about 1914 or thereabouts. And by the time of the end of the war, 1918, flying was really associated with military, more so than leisure flights. And I think, this is just my opinion, I think the people just forgot about her. However, her parents did pay for a screen to be erected in St. Mary's Cathedral. It's still there, a beautiful screen in the altar in St. Mary's Cathedral, which commemorates herself and her brother, Lord Glentworth, both of whom were killed actually in 1918 in the same year. I had a phone call last year, would you believe, from a friend of mine, Miriam Lohan, who said she was working in a charity shop in Able Ireland, I think. And she said that a book has turned up and would you like to come down and have a look? And somebody had dropped in a box of books and amongst the books, was this beautiful child's storybook bought in France in 19, I think, 1909. And it was Lady Victoria's book. Her mother and Victoria had visited Paris in 1909, I think, direction. A little earlier, maybe 1906. And they had bought this book in a toy shop. And it was beautifully inscribed in her mother's hand. And Victoria had a little scribble underneath it. And it had lain in someone's house probably for the last, clearly for the last 110, 120 years. And apart from the beautiful O'Brien carved green down in St. Mary's Cathedral and this gorgeous, literally gold leaf child's book, there's no other, you know, tangible memory of her in, in the city. So I think she's definitely a contender for a plaque or she's a contender for, you know, contender for maybe a mural or something like that. But Definitely. She is without doubt one of the most famous women to have come from Limerick. When she died in New York in 1918, she had a huge write-up in the New York Times on the front page. And it was entitled Famous Airwoman Dead. You know, and they gave her a front page base, if you like. And they really focused on her flying career. Very little about her, you know, privileged background or her parents or whatever. It was all about her very kind of egalitarian approach to her story. You know, they could have just described her as the wife of a millionaire whose parents were, you know, nobles in Ireland. However, they focused on her flying career. And at that stage, they would really have had to go on and investigate that a lot to have such a comprehensive story and account of her flying years. So I think there is definitely scope to put Lady Victoria Perry back on the map in Limerick. Yeah. And even that book, where is that book now? It would, should it be in a museum, really? It probably should. 
It, it probably should. And certainly when I'm finished writing this book, I'll probably donate it to one of the museums in Limerick without doubt. I couldn't believe it. I mean, here I am writing this book. I, I put a little notice on my Twitter account about Victoria Perry. A few weeks later, I get a phone call from Miriam saying, you'll never guess this book is after turning up. And it's like, I know it's again, a bit of a cliche, but it's like this kind of nudge, you know, I had really hit a point in the book where I was thinking, oh God, I don't know if there's any, another chapter left in me, you know, and literally out of the sky, no pun intended, comes this book and it's Victoria's book, which, you know, she bought in Paris in 1907 with her mother and it's there and it's a real thing. It's the most beautiful book. It's, it's quite big. It's about the size of a laptop when it's opened out. And it's, it's obviously all in French and she could speak French. So, you know, it's just this beautiful reminder of this dynamic woman who knew Limerick in 1900, 1910. But unfortunately, Limerick doesn't know her now. So it's my absolute intention to reintroduce the city to her. And I have to say, I've been very, very lucky to be helped along the way around, around the story with the current Lord Limerick, Edmund Sexton Perry or Edmund Perry, I should say, and his wonderful mother, Lady Sylvia Perry, Countess of Limerick, who live in the UK. And I've met them a number of times, thankfully facilitated by David O'Brien of the uh, Limerick Civic Trust. And we've sat down and we've spoken, you know, at length about the family and they've shared family albums with me and, and bits related to the family history. They did unfortunately lose a lot of family material in World War II and their house was bombed. A lot of the family papers were lost and a lovely man in, in the US as well reached out to me and he's helped me as well. He would be Lady Victoria Perry's, I think, great grandnephew. And he has reached out to me, John Copperwaith III is his name, he's a lovely man. And he has reached out to me with family papers and family memories and things like that. So I've been helped from both sides of the Atlantic, if you like, to put back together Victoria's story. Um, but I, I just thought, you know, even as a historian, I, I nearly cringe saying this, but, you know, it was this magical moment when the book appeared. You know, and even the book itself, Katie, is just it's just a footnote in the book itself. You know, it's just a slight reference. However, it's nearly in a, in a sense more important than the book I'm writing because it's actually a piece of her in the city. Unfortunately, when we reached out to the person who dropped in the box of books, it had been in the attic and she had no idea where, where it had come from. However, it's, it's a beautiful thing, you know. Wow. And you mentioned that the family and relative in America and in the UK, but did she have children herself or, you know, was there any kind of direct relatives that would, I suppose, do they know that you're doing this? Yeah, no, she had two daughters, both of whom married well, shall we say, and both of whom lived in the States, of course. One, unfortunately, can't just can't get her names out, one of their daughters, so Victoria's granddaughter, died in 2014 just. So I started researching this book about 2017, so I just missed her, if, if you'll pardon the phrase. And I don't think she had any children, and her husband died quite early and I think Victoria's other daughter had died quite early in life. So as far as I understand, there's no direct descendant. However, I have been helped by cousins, if you like, or nieces and nephews. But there's no daughter, granddaughter, grandson, great-grandson still alive. However, I think I have enough information to do the story justice. I do, however, have to get to the US, to the States, to New York, to the library 
to go through some bits of papers which have turned up and are not catalogued or digitized. So unfortunately, I have to go to New York to do a little bit of research. Woe is me. Um, to uh, to do to do the story real justice, you know. But I, I I hope the book will be ready in the next maybe eight to ten months or thereabouts. So hopefully the launch will be in St Mary's Cathedral, which I think will be will be fitting. But the family in the UK, Edmund and his mother Sylvia, have been exceptionally helpful with putting the story back together, if you like, and giving agency and voice to Victoria, which has been missing, of course. Wow, it's amazing. It's like a movie, really, you know, it really is. So it's, it's really interesting to kind of see the whole thing, pieces be put together and just kind of seeing the whole thing pan out and everything. So I'll be looking forward to seeing the display or the, in St. Mary's Cathedral. Sure. But my final question on the Limerick Treasures podcast is usually, what do you treasure most about Limerick? So you have a, a plethora of things to pick from. So <laughs> what do you treasure most about Limerick? I, I think I treasure most about the city is, you know, oh, it's it's full of stories. And, you know, again, and I suppose one can say that about everywhere, but it's it's full of the most interesting stories. Again, many of them waiting to be told or perhaps told from a slightly different context. Like I spend my Google, Katie, is newspaper archives. You know, so most people, when they want to know something about a train time, they'll go to Google. When I want to know something about Victoria Perry, I'll go to the newspaper archives. You know, most people can walk away after they find the train time on Google. However, I could be in the newspapers for 10 hours, you know. It's just eternally fascinating. And people are so helpful in the city, you know. And there's so much history in people in the city and people are always willing to share that you know Miriam Lone knowing that I was researching this book and phoning me and me you know buying the book from Enable Ireland or Randall Hodkinson on Henry Street the ecclesiastical decorator saying gosh I heard something now before and opening his family archive and showing me what's there you know and I just think that sort of that ability of Limerick people to open their doors and share what they have to help piece together the story of the city, I suppose, from the people from the ground up. It's not really something I've really experienced anywhere else, except, of course, in Kilrush, where I'm from. You know, I just think this willingness for people to learn about their city, but to be part of the storytelling, you know, to further our understanding of the city, I, I think that's really, really special. You know, I've, I've been lucky enough to travel a lot around the world. But that openness in Limerick, I haven't really experienced that, you know, in, in many places uh, around the world. So in a sense, that is, you know, the treasure. The treasure is people's capacity to share uh, their knowledge and their understanding of the history of Limerick to outsiders and blow-ins like myself, mm-hmm. which is really, really important, you know. And that's something that I'm all sorts of, I all sort of have an admiration of. And hopefully it's something that I pass on to my students as well in Mary I this sort of willingness to share knowledge to build up a broader picture that most other people can enjoy I think that's really important and really special in the city yeah well it is really important so uh thank you for digging up Limerick's treasures <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on the podcast Dr Paul O'Brien thanks Katie really enjoyed that thanks so much thank you so much for listening to the Limerick Treasures podcast We've lots of great content coming up this year, so please keep an eye out on all of our social media platforms. And remember, when Limerick speaks, we listen.